0: This is Maine Currents Independent Local News, Views and Culture for Tuesday, August 15th, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. On August 3rd, Maine-based peace activist Bruce Gagnon came to Deer Isle to talk about what's being called the U.S. pivot to the Asia-Pacific. Gagnon has traveled to South Korea and worked with peace activists there and elsewhere in the region who oppose U.S. military bases in their country. He's also made the connection with the destroyers being built here in Maine at Bath Iron Works and has been arrested for civil disobedience at BIW. Although we spoke before President Trump's recent comments about fire and fury in North Korea, Gagnon's views on the region provide insight not heard in the mainstream media. He's a senior fellow at the Nuclear Policy Research Institute and is a member of the Working Group for Peace and Demilitarization in Asia and the Pacific. Bruce Gagnon's talk was recorded by Carolyn Coe and has been edited for length.
1: Jeju Island is just off the coast of mainland Korea, just south of the mainland. And it sits really in a very strategic place. China imports 80% of their oil to run their economy on ships through what they call the Yellow Sea. And the strategy is, if the United States can choke off China's ability to import oil, then we hold the keys to their economic engine. And that we would literally be able to put a loaded gun to their head and dictate terms to them. So this is the strategy. And so uh, the uh, United States wanted this, uh, a, a, a navy base on Jeju Island so they could very rapidly uh, move warships into this zone, because previously warships were coming from uh, other parts of Korea and then from Japan, but they're much farther away from this very strategic point near the Yellow Sea. And so uh, a village in, in, uh, on Jeju Island called Kongjon Village was selected. And so these warships, these are the ships they make at Bath Iron Works, the aegis destroyers outfitted with missile defense systems they're now going to jeju island the people early on the first to, actually the first time i ever heard about jeju we were planning a protest at bath ironworks uh, at one of the christenings and i got an email from one of our board members a korean woman who told me there's going to be a protest in jeju island the same day that you're going to this holding this christening protest and i said where's jeju island and so ever since this time uh, we've been working in conjunction with them as they have been fighting for the last 10 years to try to stop the construction of this navy base that will port u.s warships jeju island is a unesco recognized world heritage site it's the place the only place in the world where they still have what they call uh, coral forests, not coral reefs, but coral forests, where the coral is actually alive and moves like a living being, Uh, and now it's all being devastated because of the dredging and all the pollution that has come from the the building of the Navy base. Kangjian Village is a 500-year-old fishing and farming community on Jeju, where the people have worshiped nature uh, throughout their time there. The, the rocky coast they call Gurumbi, where they had sacred ceremonies, prayed to their relatives. And so they were trying to defend this coast against this Navy base. And the story is that the United States said to South Korea, you build the base. And under the what they called the SOFA, S-O-F-A, status of forces agreement that the United States has with Koreans, any Korean base the United States can use anytime they want in any manner they want. And so the United States' strategy to save money is to get Korea to build it, and then the U.S. Navy handed the specifications for the base. This is what we want, this is the size we want, these are the kind of ships we want to bring there, nuclear submarines, aircraft carriers, Aegis destroyers, build it for us, and so they're following their orders. And so the people, the first time I went there, this is one of the first things I, I saw, was this cutout of an Aegis destroyer. And I was shocked. I thought, oh my God, You know, here I come from Bath, and we see this Aegis destroyer every time we drive over the bridge into Bath. And there it was on Jeju Island. And the people have been emphatic. This was 10 years ago. They've been emphatic. They don't want it. No. And so they've been in daily and nightly resistance against this Navy base for this past 10 years. This police have come from all over Korea. They didn't use police from Jeju Island. They sent police from all over the country to block the people. People would try to get into kayaks and go out into the ocean in order to get to Gurumbi, the sacred rocky coast, because it, it was blocked off with razor wire and other... other, uh, other uh, restrictions. They couldn't get to it anymore, so they tried to go in kayaks, and the police would not even allow people to go into their own fishing port and go out in kayaks out to the water. One of the most famous people there protesting on Jeju Island is a Catholic priest by the name of Father Moon. He's one of the, oh, just uh, great characters in in South Korean uh, effort for democracy. You know, after the After the war was over, World War II, and the United States defeated Japan, Japan had occupied Korea for many years, very brutally. And so the U.S. took over. And who did the U.S. put in charge of South Korea after the war was over? Well, they put the former collaborators, the former Koreans, the Koreans, who collaborated with the Japanese fascists. They put them in charge. The U.S. did. And so they were brutal immediately, towards the people, the US directed, just on Jeju alone, a terrible slaughter of up to 30, 40, 50,000 people because these were just peasants revolting against these collaborators. Everybody said, oh, these, these people collaborated with the Japanese, we've got to stand in resistance against them. And the United States directed the slaughter of people on Jeju Island as they rose up and across the entire country, about 100,000 people were killed uh, uh, because they stood up against these collaborators that the United States put in charge. So for many years, the United States, in, after that, installed a series of dictators. And so Father Moon was one of the leading characters to stand up against uh, these dictators through the years to try to bring demo- real democracy to Korea. And so some years ago, he moved to Jeju Island, to Kongjon Village, where he lives to, the, uh, to this day and leads the daily Catholic mass at the front gate of the base that is now open and receiving US warships. Our Veterans for Peace uh, nationally, we organized in 2015 a a delegation to go to Jeju Island. We went there and sat with the people as they tried to block the gates, uh, this uh, tremendous uh, huge equipment coming in to build this Navy base. We stood with them uh, in, their, in their struggle. Uh, very heartbreaking experience for anybody that's been there. And so this was the arrival of the first Aegis destroyer after the base had officially opened. People went out in kayaks into the water. They stood on the shoreline with signs what used to be a beautiful, sacred, rocky coast blasted with dynamite, concrete poured over it, so the United States will have a port for its warships made here in our bioregion. I keep telling friends in here in Maine, we have to keep going to Bath Ironworks because when they christen these ships, they bring in the crew And they march them down Washington Street in Bath. And they go in, you know, to the ceremony, the christening ceremony. And then they stay in Bath for months and months as they learn about the ship. They live in local uh, motels and stuff like that. And they learn how to work the ship. So they're around for a long time. I say, we've got to keep protesting in Bath because we have to get them ready. We have to get these sailors used to seeing protesters Because when they go to Japan, when they go to Korea, they're going to see protesters. And we want them to understand what people are saying and why they're saying it. So we have an obligation in Bath, Maine to to get these folks ready. You know, we hear a lot these days about how are we going to get North Korea to stop launching missiles? Are we going to attack them, do a decapitation strike, a first strike attack on them? Which people say will lead to... You know, Seoul is only, I think, 60 miles away from North Korea, be easily hit with just conventional artillery. Millions of people, they say, would be killed in Seoul if war began that the United States initiated. And you know what North Korea is saying? You want us to stop? You want us to stop launching these missiles? You have to do one thing. Stop holding these war games on our borders that you do all the time the United States South Korea other countries Japan Canada after the uh, after the Korean War armistice on July 27 1953 armistice means ceasefire right there's no treaty the Korean War is not over there's a ceasefire and the United States continues day after day after day to do military war games on the North Korean border and North Korea is saying to themselves, okay we've seen Panama we've seen Grenada we've seen Yugoslavia we've seen Iraq and Afghanistan we've seen Syria we don't know if today this war game is a war game or is it a decapitation strike we don't know and so North Korea says you want us to stop launching missiles stop your war games and we got a deal sign a peace treaty with us and we got a deal that's all they're asking and the united states continues to refuse to do that the other warship now made at bath ironworks is the zumwalt stealth destroyer stealthy destroyer that they say would be able to sneak up on china and blast them with new weapon system called electromagnetic rail guns that can fire a shell the the distance between Philadelphia and New York City. Part of U.S. first strike attack planning. Our uh, recent arrest, the Zumwalt 12 in Bath, was protesting that christening of one of those ships. The DDG-1000, they call it. And so the people in Jeju, they get it. They understand what missile defense means. They understand that it's not about defense. They understand that it's part of US first strike attack planning. They're organizing. They're continually protesting. Ten years later they're still out there every single day. Also now going into Korea and another part of Korea is this US missile defense system called THAAD. T-H-A-A-D, THAAD. It stands for Terminal High Altitude Area Defense. So there are different kinds of missile defense systems. Some ground-based launchers, some on ships. And the idea is to be able to try to hit the other side's missile at various stages of flight. And so this one, the idea is to hit it high-altitude. And so the United States has brought uh, this thad now to Songju in Korea. Songju, it's very interesting. They were traditionally a right-wing community. In the last election, uh, no, the previous election, when the right-wing President Park, a woman uh, president, was elected, the daughter of the former dictator that the U.S. installed many years ago, after World War II, when she won the election, this Songju community voted 85 percent in favor of the right-wing government. But when it was announced that uh, Thad was going to go into Songju, probably because they figured that it would be safe because this is such a right-wing community, we could get away with it, the community had a funeral procession where they en masse resigned. From the ruling party and they immediately joined the peace movement and it became the top peace issue in all of Korea so I like to say to people you know don't ever completely rule out uh, the, the people on the right wing because it only takes one circumstance that they might be willing to swing around our side and come together with us and I must say the Korean peace community was very wise that they didn't say, oh, well, you're just a bunch of right-wingers, where you been all these years, now you're, you, know, you want to come and you want us to help you. No, they embraced them in the most loving way and began to help organize massive protests all over Korea. And so the people in Songju have created a, a huge movement that made it very difficult for the United States to come forward with, uh, with uh, this THAAD missile. Not only would they protest all day long, but also every night for the last more than about a year and a half now. Every single night they've held a candlelight vigil where they come together, sing, dance together. But then President Park was impeached because of corruption. They called it the candlelight uh, revolution, a million and a half 2 million people marching through Seoul week after week after week forced the government to be toppled. And a new president was just elected, a liberal Democrat by the name of Moon. And he came into office saying, we're going to delay this deployment of THAAD. But the United States wasn't about to be denied. And so the United States pushed ahead with the THAAD deployment. In fact, even in the middle of the night, the United States brought in these THAAD, they're called batteries, uh, on trucks, these launchers that would launch these THAAD missiles, along with a radar. The THAAD radar, whose job ostensibly is to look for the incoming missiles, in fact, it has the ability to scan 2,000 kilometers into both Russia and China, which are very near Korea, as you know. And so the people of Korea are very clear that THAAD is really not about North Korea whatsoever. Remember that THAAD stands for Terminal High Altitude Area Defense. And so the truth of the according to Ted Postal, an MIT professor and expert on missile defense in Cambridge, Mass., he says that because of the proximity of North Korea and South Korea, North Korea would launch missiles at a low level, not at a high level. And so THAAD would never be able to pick off any missile coming from North Korea, because it would not go to a high altitude. It would stay on a lower trajectory. And so in fact, Postal says, as many other people do as well, that THAAD is really about Russia and China. Now let's go to Okinawa. Okinawa has, uh, what is it, 22 bases? Today, 22 US bases. It's amazing to go there and to drive from one end of Okinawa to the other because what you see is base after base after base after base. Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine. Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine. It's just amazing. And this, it's been this way since the end of World War II. The United States has had these bases there, and now they're expanding even more. They need more areas for training. They need bigger runways. And now one of the great, great uh, sadnesses is is training areas in the north, a famous uh, forest that is uh, being devastated so the United States can bring in Osprey helicopters and practice touchdown troop unloading fighting in the, in the forest and all that kind of thing. So our Veterans for Peace, after going to uh, Jeju Island, we went to Okinawa for a week, and we, we went up to the forest there as well. But this is one of the great tragedies of all. There's a bay in Okinawa called Ora Bay. And the United States is now building, well, I, I, I should correct myself. The United States has told the Japanese government to build twin runways over Ora Bay. And in order to do that, they have to bring in landfill into the bay itself where endangered coral reefs are, where endangered dugongs. It's a relative of the manatee. There are only three or four dugongs left. They they live in this bay. And so I think the number is... I believe it's three and a a half million 10-ton dump truck loads of landfill have to be dumped. Can you imagine that? Three and a a half million 10-ton dump truck loads of landfill have to be dumped there. And so the entire fishing community devastated. The entire way of life of the people of Okinawa around this bay Devastated. And so they, they have now been protesting outside of the gates of the US bases against this. So we went there, our Veterans for Peace uh, group, we went there and sat with them one, early one morning while it was still dark. And what we discovered when we arrived was they were mostly old people. And in fact, mostly old women. And they go out and they sit in front of the construction gate And the Japanese police come in and drag them off. And then they go back again. And this goes on day after day after day after day after day. Because they know they're fighting for their children's future. They're fighting for their sacred connection to nature. As far as they're concerned, they have no choice other than to do this. So it was an amazing experience for us to join with them, blocking the front gate of this Marine base called Camp Schwab that sits right on the bay and where this airfield is now being built. It's really one of the great tragedies, one of the greatest tragedies I've ever seen.
0: You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. This is Maine-based peace activist Bruce Gagnon speaking in Deer Isle on August 3rd.
1: We've been running a campaign for the last 10 years in Bath, talking to the community about the need to convert Bath ironworks, to build rail and solar and wind turbines and tidal power systems so that we can deal with climate change rather than wasting our money, just throwing it down the rat hole on endless war. And it's very interesting to know that University of Massachusetts at Amherst Economics Department did a study that says if at Bath Ironworks we built rail systems rather than warships we would get double the jobs because military spending is capital intensive means it eats up a lot of money whereas every other kind of production every other kind of expenditure creates more jobs than we would get building weapons so you think Everybody's job-scared these days. All the politicians promise, oh, they're going to create jobs. Well, if they really wanted to create jobs, we would convert the military-industrial complex. But the politicians aren't listening. So we're trying to take this message out to the people, saying, let's think about the children, let's think about the future generations, and let's talk about how we're going to really make this a livable, sustainable planet. The last five years, we've done peace walks through different parts of Maine. And so we decided this year, for our walk in October, we're going to walk in Bath. We're going to stay in Bath for five days. In the morning, we're going to hold a vigil as the workers come to work. And then during the daytime, we're going to go door to door to every house and business in the city of Bath, dropping flyers talking about the conversion of Bath Ironworks, climate change, more jobs by building solar, wind, rail, etc. And so uh, and then in the afternoon, we're going to go back as the workers knock off for another vigil at the end of the day. We'll have evening programs with speakers. We're going to show films about the places like Jeju Island where these warships made in Bath are going. And so we're going to have a concentrated week of activity in Bath. So we invite you all to come for a day, for an hour, for the entire time with us. We'll be there for eight days doing this in October uh, this year in Bath. Last year our walk came through Brunswick. and We had a program at the uh, Unitarian Church in Brunswick. We had a potluck supper and then a program where we talked about the Thad and the Aegis Destroyer in Korea. And we had uh, uh, Buddhist monks and nuns led our walk, Japanese uh, Buddhist monks and nuns, from an order called Niponzen and Myohoji, They've led all of our walks that we've done, very spiritual experiences for all of us. This year, one of the, we asked a Jeju Island organizer, friends of ours, to send us, one of your activists to join our walk, because we want someone from Jeju to be present in our community while we're there. And so they let us know that they're sending a, a really brilliant musician, activist, very creative guy, uh, one of the founders of a group there called the Hot, what is it? Hot Pink Dolphins, uh, Russell, Russell's favorite group, and uh, they wear dolphin outfits and all this kind of thing. So a uh, guy by the name of Joyak Gol. so he's coming and he's gonna be with us for the entire week. We're very excited to have him with us. Uh, we're also gonna be showing a film that we've just recently learned about. We're gonna probably show it at the Bath Library and invite the community to come. It's called Village Versus Empire, and it's created by a South African filmmaker. He went to Jeju Island, and he brought this woman who's actually originally from Jeju, but she's now living in Oakland, California. And she's a, a uh, what's the word? She's a mystic, spiritual, mystical person that communicates with nature and interprets nature through dance and other performance, and so, The art filmmaker very beautifully used her to tell the story of Jeju Island. And she goes with him to Jeju, and they interview Korean poets and artists and musicians. So the entire film is an art film about this very political subject of Jeju Island. It's an unbelievable film. Well, let me just end uh, with this. Every year, the global network that I work for Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. Our website is spaceforpeace.org, spaceforpeace.org. Every year we have a thing called Keep Space for Peace Week, where we ask activists all over the world during this week to hold some kind of activity, making the link to these space issues to help educate the local community. And so this, and every year we have a different theme. And so this year our theme is No THAAD in Songju, no missile defense in Korea. Because we see this particular issue as one of the primary uh, instigators of the possibility of nuclear war uh, on the earth today. So we ask you, as you're doing your weekly protest uh, in October, during the week of 7th through the 14th, think about making this connection, if you would, to Songju. Maybe some signs uh, making this connection. No No missile defense in Songju. Missile defense is a key element in U.S. first strike attack planning. Things like that. Let me just tell you this story. Every year the U.S. Space Command holds a computer war game called Red Team versus Blue Team. And in this computer war game... The United States launches a first-strike attack on Russia and China. So they're actually practicing this, and they've been doing this for about 10 years. I read about it in one of the industry magazines called Aviation Week and Space Technology. And so in this war game, after the U.S. launches their first-strike attack, trying to take out Russian and Chinese underground nuclear missiles, It's trying to take out Russian and Chinese submarines that have nuclear uh, missiles on them. They then try to fire their retaliatory capability, and it's at that point that the United States so-called missile defense systems, again, are used to try to pick them off to give the US a successful first strike attack. So missile defense, then, is indeed provocative, destabilizing, dangerous, And that's why the U.S. pulled out of the ABM Treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, with with Russia. Because that treaty disallowed, disallowed the development of missile defense systems. And so this year we want to really emphasize this during Keep Space for Peace Week.
0: That was Bruce Gagnon, a Maine based peace activist, senior fellow at the Nuclear Policy Research Institute, and member of the Working Group for Peace and Demilitarization in Asia and the Pacific, speaking in Deer Isle on August 3rd. His talk was recorded by Carolyn Coe and edited for length to fit this time slot. Up next on Maine Currents, Dennis Howard talks with Peter Alexander about a one way trip to Mars.
2: Good afternoon. I'm here on Main Currents speaking with Peter Alexander. My name is Dennis Howard, and we're chatting about Peter's rock opera called One Way Trip to Mars. Peter, you've been here on WERU over the years. Tell us a bit about Peter Alexander, the musician.
3: Oh my God, that's a long story. It goes back to my very first rock band, Peter and the Wolves, when I was in junior high in Washington, D.C., But uh, since moving to Maine in 2008, I I spent all my childhood summers up here, so it was a kind of a magnetic force. But when I moved here in 2008 and then moved to Bath in 2011, uh, I I formed a rock and roll band called Hollow Body Electric, recruited my wife uh, and life partner, Johanna Harkness, into the band, first just to sing harmonies, and then she started writing songs. And then she got the idea for a rock opera, uh, based on the idea of a one-way trip to Mars, which is, we were astounded to learn that a company in uh, the Netherlands called the Mars One program actually is advertising and promoting a one-way trip to Mars to colonize the red planet, and over 200,000 people have signed up. Many of them leaving their, you know, ready to leave their families behind, and I thought, oh. Okay, if the FBI's after you, maybe, but my God, what is? But what about that? And what about the psychology of somebody who would leave behind everything? And then Johanna started writing songs from the perspective of, what about the people left behind? And uh, it was a pretty organic process. You know, at first we didn't really have a storyline. Uh, we just had this vague idea that uh, the guy's going to go flying off to Mars. And, you know, we thought about making it over time and space and, You know, centuries later with cryogenically frozen, you know, people and stuff. But we made it actually really simple and brought it down to what actually could scientifically happen with NASA planning a a manned mission to Mars in 2033 and Elon Musk with his SpaceX program, looking at a date considerably in advance of that, and other space programs around the world also uh, contending to uh, be the first one to send humans to Mars and to colonize the red planet. There's a lot of activity here, so this is not at all beyond the realm of possibility. And uh, We first put on the show, uh, we, we, we wrote 18 songs together and put it on as a concert at the Chocolate Church last fall attracted the attention of a of a, a Hollywood I'm sorry I mean a Broadway actor and a director a producer and uh, he's been working with us to rework the piece for musical theater and now we've got 28 songs a very uh, cohesive storyline better character development and it's all in music there's not a single spoken word so it's not a traditional musical it is a rock opera all in rock and roll music with a rock band 11-piece rock band that'll be providing the foundation And uh, we hired cast out of New York, and we're putting it on at the Waterville Opera House at the end of August, August 24th through 27th.
2: Obviously a rich sort of subject matter, but many people might have just simply composed an album. Why a rock opera, which takes it to a new level of complexity? Because we're crazy, perhaps.
3: Um, (laughs) But, you know, you don't know when you start climbing a mountain like that just how much is involved. And, you know, we're learning as we go. And if you knew, you'd probably be intimidated to start. But we were really intrigued with the idea of taking this onto the stage, and uh, it worked really well. Even as a concert version, when we did it at the Chocolate Church, the audiences loved it. And I mean, I had one guy come up to me and said it was the best evening of entertainment he'd ever had, and I thought, that's pretty flattering. But uh, we responded to their enthusiasm with uh, a deeper commitment to take the thing to the next level. So, you know, we've sort of jumped off a cliff on this one, but it's exciting, We've, we've collected a really amazing team and it's gonna it's not just uh actors on stage singing these songs there's also uh chad lefebvre who um, grew up in waterville but does a lot of cinematic background work in uh for musicals uh in in uh, broadway has developed a uh, it's a cinematic backdrop where the audience will go with these characters into space, and they will be with the characters on the surface of Mars all through video uh, archival video files from NASA and um, some of these other space agencies. It's pretty darn incredible. It's going to be a a pretty mind-blowing experience, and I can't wait to sit in the audience and watch it. (laughs)
2: Now, David Bowie, Elton John, Peter Schilling, people have written songs about being an astronaut, and it seemed like there was so much attention on space and exploration, perhaps in the 1960s and maybe through the 70s and the 80s during the space shuttle's heyday of publicity. But nowadays, with everybody looking down at, at some device in their hand, are you finding that this is a great idea that people are realizing. There's still some excitement to be had up in space. This is this subject matter of this rock opera could actually appeal to people who haven't thought about space or anything new in a long time. This is partly why we caught the attention of people
3: from the space exploration community. Um, you know, after the uh, moon landings, uh, there was a decision made uh, at the f- executive level of the federal government to pretty much suspend those uh, long distance travels. And we went into the the shuttle program and that, did that for 25, 30 years or whatever. There is now a much bigger push uh, to reawaken and reenergize the space exploration efforts. Uh, in particular, the logical next target is Mars. We've done the moon. Now uh, there's talk about establishing a way station on the moon. Uh, so that uh, the fuel issue is a big one. Uh, how do you – where do you get the fuel to get there? How do, you, how do you transport it? Taking it all from Earth is a pretty big chunk of uh, energy. So they're talking all kinds of different technologies. But the point is that the space exploration community is re-energized and uh, Explore Mars is a nonprofit out of, um, they, they're out of Massachusetts, but now located in, in DC area. They're the ones who found us online. Ironically, uh, the head of the uh, organization, Chris Carberry, was scanning the internet and found our audition notice on Broadway World or Backstage or some, some site like that, and called me up and invited me to come down to their uh, annual summit where I met all the folks from NASA and and uh, Lockheed Martin and all these huge, huge companies. And he asked me to bring my guitar and play some songs. <laughs> and uh, We had quite a time. They they had me play at a reception where Ard Beg Single Malt Whiskey was hosting and providing everybody a very well-lubricated evening. And uh, it was a lot of fun. But I made a lot of connections, and they're enthusiastic about it because they see the importance of integrating the idea of space exploration into popular culture. So movies like The Martian and stuff like that, they're very excited about that. And they're particularly excited about a Broadway-bound stage production like ours. Uh, So that's where that came from.
2: I recently watched the Jennifer Lawrence, Chris Pratt film, Passengers, which is about a one-way trip to Mm -hmm. somewhere much farther out. And I'm realizing in rock opera and Broadway musical-esque form for something like this, I imagine a venue like the Waterville Opera House is really one of the few places you can pull this off in Maine. You need a venue that's capable of, as you said, the stage sets. You need to have acoustics. You need to have space for, for the show. Is the Waterville Opera House the ideal location for you in this event?
3: At this point, yes. Uh, it, it's the best location for us in the state of Maine, without a doubt. They have a state-of-the-art theater. They have incredible uh, lighting capacity, and they have one of the best sound systems, and it's a size that's manageable for us. So the audience can have what amounts to basically still an intimate experience with the uh, production. It's an 810-seat theater. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's why we chose it. And um, there are actually some shows that were spawned at Waterville Opera House that have made it to Broadway. So uh, we're looking at that as a precedent and as an opportunity.
2: Now, this topic of space exploration and the space program, I'm curious if this is a relatively recent interest of yours or if you have always been interested in space exploration.
3: Well, ever since Neil Armstrong, you know, actually, even, even since uh, Shepard went up that first time, I was a little kid at that point, and of course that's exciting, and um, I think the interest faded for me uh, after the moon landings. After 1969, it became kind of routine, and then the moon landings ended, and it became a shuttle program, and so uh, starting in the mid-70s, it, it, I kind of lost interest. Uh, as I think the general public kind of did too. It just became routine. But now this is new. This is exciting. This is um, innovative, and it's enormously challenging. We're talking about sending humans to a planet when a, a warm day is like 200 degrees below zero, and uh, the atmosphere is about one one hundredth of what we have here on Earth. The gravity is about uh, one third. Uh, it's in, uh, when I went to this conference, I learned a bunch of really interesting things. I mean, the health issues are, are enormous. Uh, sending somebody up in space, it takes, depending on when you leave, it could take from six or seven months to two and a half years to get there at the current speeds at which spacecraft travel, twenty to 25,000 miles an hour. Uh, because the way the orbits work, at the closest place, is about 50 million miles away. And at the furthest point, is about 250 miles, million miles away. And if you do the math, but 20,000 miles an hour, that's a pretty long trip. So, but then, you know, when you get up there, uh, how do you survive? It's like they're incredible challenges. But we, all the people in the space exploration, exploration community, are saying we have the technology, it's been available for a long time. What we have lacked is the political will and the, the financial um, background. So, that's, that's what we're, um, we're looking at as a society. And what we're looking at culturally and artistically is the impacts on our society. What's the impacts on the human beings? And. Um- one more little tidbit, uh, you know, Stephen Hawking, who everybody knows about, has been saying it's an imperative for the human race to populate another planet because he's saying it's a, not a probability, it's a certainty that Earth will be subjected to some kind of calamity. And whether that's an asteroid or whether it's a self-imposed calamity like global warming or nuclear terrorism or some other thing that causes the human race to go into really serious survival mode, uh, he's saying we need to have humans on an, a human, thriving human colony on another planet in order to ensure the survival of the human race. So we actually took that idea and built it into our rock opera. And uh, part of the plot is that once uh, our hero uh, gets up to Mars and starts assembling the components for the colony that is supposed to follow, uh, nuclear terrorism and global warming and catastrophic events on Earth cause communication links to go down. And so he's stuck up there by himself with no communication. He doesn't know what's going on. And then the space agency, in a last sort of heroic move as they realize everything is going to pot, they send Paolo's life partner and fellow astronaut, Cassandra, up to join him. She doesn't know if he's alive. He doesn't know she's coming. And he goes from being this like full of himself, you know, top gun kind of guy, to becoming really humble. And she goes from being the woman who was left behind to becoming totally
2: empowered
3: and like the salvation, literally, of the human race. So that's kind of a cool
2: intersection. I I get from listening to you talk about the rock opera, and of course I don't want you to toss out any spoilers or anything, but I get the feeling that a lot of this, as you've mentioned, has been grounded in you learning about space exploration, the, the industry around it. I'm curious, though, if much of this also comes from science fiction, which is a genre that seems to vary in degrees of popularity from time to time, but right now would seem to be at maybe another another peak.
3: Yeah, I th- and I think science fiction has played a role in, in fact, the development of the science. It's, it's in many cases predicted the science. I mean, even like the comic strips. Remember Dick Tracy's two-way radio, and then it became a two-way wrist TV, and now we have cell phones? So, I mean— you know, these ideas uh, are out there and they are manifesting because people, as the technology develops, they, they were able to manifest these just absolutely incredible ideas. So, yeah, I uh, I was not personally uh, impacted so much by science fiction in writing this story, um, nor was my wife, uh, Johanna Harkness, who wrote half the songs. Um, but one of the things that really got me was listening to astronauts speak about their experiences in space, almost every one of them has had some kind of really cosmic, mind-altering experience by going up there. And uh, I was listening to a show, Johanna and I were listening to a show at one point a couple of years ago where astronauts were talking about it. And I just started writing down, jotting down what they were saying. They were so poetic and so um, sort of spiritually awake and aware. And I took those lyrics and I turned them into a song. And Maybe you can play a little excerpt from it. And it's called Space Journey. And almost all the lyrics from that song are straight from the lips of astronauts. I put a little connecting tissue, but pretty much it's all the words of astronauts. And that's the song, actually, that the folks in D.C. at this conference, they really loved that song.
4: Shone on my distant home. It looked a fragile blue. And the sky was black around me. And yet I felt no fear. I saw the bigger picture. And from this distance. Its place, all the trouble in that natural world is from the human race, but there's challenge and confusion as I wonder what to say to share this revelation friends will come to listen some
2: your There is a very small club of people who have been off this planet looking down. And uh, these are their thoughts and their words.
3: Yeah. Well, and we have a couple of astronauts here from Maine. And um, uh, one of them is the head of the uh, astronaut, uh, what do you, the, the contingent of astronauts. I don't know what they're called. Uh, and that, that's a, a fella named Chris. Uh, I'm, I'm spacing on his name. And then um, I think it's Jessica Mayer. Uh, is uh, another astronaut whose time is coming. I think she has not gone up yet, but I think her time is coming either this year, her rotation is coming this year or next. She's soon to go up. Uh, So there is a Maine connection here. And there's some companies here in Maine that are involved in um, manufacturing. There's um, Fiber Materials Inc. down in Kennebunk that manufactures a carbon-based fiber that's used in the nozzles of the rocket engines and there quite a few organizations have grant funding from NASA to do research related to space exploration Gulf of Maine Research Institute you know Bigelow Labs a bunch of them so
2: it's always hard to get people in Maine, or probably anywhere, but but in Maine, hard to get people to an event. This is something I hear from venues and musicians. It is hard to get the person off the couch and actually to go to the theater the night of the show. A lot of our audience, I think we can safely say, are committed activists or people very concerned with the world, news, public affairs are very important, uh, activism. And, and what would you say to somebody who thinks this kind of subject matter is perhaps just an escapist? silly little musical why would they go see this when there's big things happening on earth do you think it's because of the issues that it's touching on
3: I think that is a significant piece of it. Uh, I am personally a long-time political activist, as anybody who knows me knows. I've had to really restrain myself on my Facebook page, (laughs) (laughs) but um, especially in the current political climate. But um, we have written into a lot of this material a sort of a a social and environmental ethic that underlies the storyline, and we don't put a political spin on it. It's simply the facts. As as the story develops, it's global terrorism, nuclear terrorism, uh, global warming, I should say, um, catastrophic events. And one of the lyrics in the song, the guy realizes he's standing on the moon looking down at the earth that all the problems back on earth are caused by the human race. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, there's definitely an activist element to this. And uh, we hope that the music uh, is really good. I mean, uh, <laughs> we hope that people find the music to be really good, and that it's worth spending an evening. It's not just an evening of of entertainment, which I'm you know, I'm not gonna be on stage, so I can say it's gonna be a great evening of entertainment. Um, we have really fantastic actors. Uh, When we went and did the auditions in New York, uh, and two of the actors are from here in in Maine, but the ones uh, that we did in New York, we had over 200 apply, and we auditioned about 50 or 60 of them. The ones we chose were so good that when we sat and listened to them, they brought tears to our eyes. I mean, I'm not kidding you. It's just like absolutely amazing voices that are so full of soul and so full of passion and so beautiful. It's just, we're like beside ourselves. We can't wait to to listen to this thing.
2: (laughs) And this is coming to the Waterville Opera House August 24th, 25th, and 26th at 8 p.m., and then August 27th, a matinee show at 2.30. Right. And that's at the Waterville Opera House. It's a rock opera called One Way Trip to Mars, and we have been speaking this afternoon with Peter Alexander and Peter I wanted you to have the chance to tell people where they could learn more about the rock opera your music itself and more information on this event
3: well we have a pretty big presence on Facebook Uh, one Us is our official uh, site or one Org, which is a little more commonly known even one Net, so you can hardly miss uh, on Facebook, if you just search for me, uh, as actually, you, you won't find me as Peter Alexander because that's my stage name. And my legal name on Facebook is Peter Blatchley, B-L-A-C-H-L-Y, which nobody seems to be able to pronounce, which is why I use Alexander. <laughs> but now that you know what it sounds like, you can call me Peter Blatchley if you want to, and you can find me pretty easily. But on Facebook, you can also find One Way Trip to Mars. And we're all over the media these days. We're getting a lot of media coverage. Bob Keyes uh, from the Portland Press-Herald did a fantastic article about the show a few weeks ago. Uh, Northern Journeys that just came out has a really nice article. <laughs> it was based on interview questions they sent me, and then they just turned it into an article. So it's basically they're crediting me as the author. But it's um, I enjoyed reading it after it finally came out. Uh, So, yeah, it's easy to find us. And uh, Waterville Opera House is operahouse.org, and they have information on the show as well.
2: We wish you good luck with the premiere.
3: Thank you so much, Dennis. It's been a pleasure.
0: That was WERU's Dennis Howard speaking with Peter Alexander about the rock opera, A One-Way Trip to Mars, premiering at the Waterville Opera House on August 24th. The website, for more information, is onewaytriptomars.us. And you've been listening to Maine Currents. Join us here on WERU every Wednesday at 4 for independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Contributors today were Carolyn Coe and Dennis Howard and all of you who made a donation during our pledge drive last week. Thank you. You can reach us at news at weru.org. Archives of our shows can be found at our website weru.org. Democracy Now! is coming up next, and then Jazz Alchemy, so keep it tuned here to Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org.